we all know that life is very complicated. There's many of us here who just would just love it if it was black and white, right or wrong, left or right. You know, you, you get to that point in life where you come up to a, to a T intersection. Do I go left or right? But instead we come up to a stop sign and there's like a whole myriad of choices in front of us. What, what do we do? Because we recognize that life is not just a polarity of, of this way or that way, but it's more of a spectrum. There, there's more gray than we would like to admit. There's not so clear right and wrong, but rather there's things like, well, that's good and, and this is better and this is best. And so we have many choices before us and we have desires within us. We have priorities. We have impulses. We have things that have shaped and influenced us as we navigate the complexity of life. But how often do we take time to evaluate our own priorities, our our own desires, the the things that are influencing us to to make those choices among, among the myriads of options that we encounter each and every day and each and every week? And the text we're going to look at today is a call for us to make sure that we're prioritizing the right things, to make sure that we're keeping the best thing, the main thing, and that we're pursuing what is excellent and not just settling for, you know, what is not sinful, not just settling for what is okay, what is acceptable, what perhaps even is good, but, but pressing on to see what is better and best and even what is most excellent And pursuing that and using that to govern our decisions and our priorities in this life. So that's the task before us. And the text I want to show you that teaches that is in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. Look there with me, Luke 10, starting in verse 38. Let me read this entire section. Then we're going to come back and and look at this piece by piece. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is a text we're going to look at and see our evaluation of our own priorities. Now, if you notice there in verse number 38, it says Jesus is on his way. So here they are moving again. And if you remember, we we began this chapter with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to his crucifixion. He is on his way for the very reason why he came into this world to give his life as a ransom for many. And so here comes the son of man, the son of God, the king of kings, Lord of lords into the earth so that he might go and die for sinful people, that he might lay down his life as the good shepherd for his sheep. And yet as he is on his way to that goal, he takes time to to teach and to disciple and to call people into his kingdom and to give comfort to his saints. And so he enters a village and is welcomed into the home of Martha. And we're introduced here in the gospel of Luke with Martha. And if you read the other gospels, you find out that that Martha Martha not only has a sister, Mary, but also has a brother, Lazarus. The very same Lazarus to whom Jesus came after he had died and Jesus wept over Lazarus before he raised him again from the dead. And so obviously this is a family in which Jesus shares a close friendship. Now how long they knew each other before this particular event, we're not told. But Jesus here is a friend to Martha, a friend to Mary, a friend to Lazarus. And Martha here appears to be the owner of this home, which is unusual in the ancient world, would indicate that she has no husband, would also indicate that she is likely a woman of great wealth to be able to, to be on her own and to have her own household. It was likely that, 
You know, she had wealth, not only able to house her and her sister and her brother, but also Jesus and his disciples as they came to be able to be a host to them, a meeting place where Jesus could teach others. But the most surprising thing about this narrative is is not Martha, not her welcoming Jesus into her house, not her wealth and her ability to even do that, but the fact that her sister Mary, according to verse 39, is there sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. Now, this would have been shocking to those reading or hearing about this account. Here's, here's Mary, rather than taking the role of, of a servant like Martha, preparing food or other aspects of hospitality for their guests. Here's Mary at the feet of Jesus as a disciple, as a learner to be taught by him. In a, in a world where education for women and education for men look quite different. And here's Mary plunking herself down at the feet of Jesus. And the language here doesn't quite come out that clearly in English when it says that, um, that Martha's sister Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. The, the verb there, sat, is, is really, a, it's a reflexive. It means that she sat herself down or, or she plunked herself down right at the front of Jesus' feet. This is her initiative. This is what she did. This is, this is her choice. This is her place that she would rather be here at the feet of Jesus learning from him. And here he is teaching. And what we see in verse number 40 is that Martha is not pleased. Verse 40, that Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to Jesus and she said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. And so as Martha here is not pleased and you can tell a little bit exasperated at her sister because it says here that she was distracted. She was distracted with much serving. And the connotation of this word distracted means that she was distracted by, by carrying this heavy burden, this heavy load. And so here she is slaving away while her sister Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I can imagine Martha in, in her frantic state trying maybe at first to patiently draw Mary away, you know, tap her on the shoulder. Mary, we got work to do. And then maybe a little tug and Mary kind of shrugging her off. And then, and then Martha finally like, Jesus, don't you see this? I know you're a man of compassion. Won't you have compassion upon me and tell my sister to come and help me? I've tried to get her attention. And so Lord, please tell her to come help me. Now, Martha here is very relatable to us. I know there are many of us who've been in situations when we've been so busy. You know, you have a to-do list that's so long that you've forgotten half of it. You're, you're just frantic to try to get everything done, whether that's, this is at home or whether this is at work or, or a number of chores that need to be done or a number of projects or assignments for school. And, and so you're frantic trying to get work. And, and those who really should be helping you have decided that now is a great time just to sit and read a book or watch something on TV or just make themselves scarce. And it's like, come on, we're trying to get this done. Why aren't you here helping me? And this exact context of preparing a meal or preparing for guests in your home, many of the mothers here can probably relate. I know sometimes in house, our household, mom is busy preparing for guests to come over and the household just a few minutes ago was just brimming with noise as kids were bouncing off the walls. And all of a sudden when mom says, okay, guys, let's get to work. It's like, where is everybody? Crickets. Everybody's gone somewhere. And so if you found yourself here, you're going to cut Martha some slack. You're going you're gonna to understand her. You're going to feel her pain. You're going to feel her frustration. You're going to sympathize with her. You may, you may even feel that she's justified at this point. What is Mary doing? And look how Jesus handles it. Verse number 41. But the Lord answered Martha. He said, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. 
But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What Jesus does here with Martha is seek to address her anxiety and the fact that she is so burdened about these many things and by pointing out that really she is wrongly burdened with these things at this moment. That she should, in one sense, calm down and reflect on what is necessary at this moment. That she is doing good things, yet it's not the necessary thing, not the best thing, not the most excellent thing. Mary has chosen the good portion. And the good portion here, that, that word portion can refer to, to food. It's almost like if you imagine a buffet with all these food choices before you. And it's like, well, Mary actually chose the best food on the menu. Oh, you, you, you might have chose something that's, that's decent, that's healthy, that's okay. But, but Mary's choice was, was the best choice. And so I'm not going to take her away from that. But you should learn from your sister in choosing the best portion. What is necessary? What is most excellent? Martha overlooked the fact that Jesus was there in her household. And she was so busy serving and burdened by the task of serving that she missed that Jesus was right there with her. And so the point of this particular event in Jesus' life is actually quite simple. There are many good things in which we may set our minds to and our hands to do. But there are necessary things. There are better things. There are excellent things. And we must prioritize those things about, above all the other good things in our life. And so prioritizing here Jesus and his teaching is the better portion. I think it's fitting how Luke, by the power of the Spirit, has included this event right after the parable of the Good Samaritan. The parable of the Good Samaritan reminded us of the, of the need to love our neighbor and to serve and love our neighbor in practical and tangible ways. And if you do not, then, then you, in one sense, do not know God or do not love God. And this reminds us of, well, a love for neighbor is so good, but yet higher than that is your love and devotion to God. That, that Mary's devotion to Christ was, was higher than her devotion even to her own sister and to help her in her time of, of need. And so it's a question of our priorities. This certain event, this event here is, is not a choice between right and wrong, between sin and righteousness. Not that, that, that Mary was right and Martha was wrong and, and Mary was righteous and Martha was sinning. That's not the point of this particular event. It is choosing what is excellent over what is good. Now I want to, to say this to those who identify here with Martha. I know there are many of you here that identify with Martha. This is not a denigration of hospitality. This, this is not meant to say, well, serving is not something you should be doing, but you should be doing more sitting than serving. Less working, more relaxing. That's, that's not the point of this particular event He's not relegating housekeeping to an unimportant Christian task. And really, you should be sitting home doing theology all the time and not cleaning your house. It's not the point. This is not a call even to be a better Martha because I know there's some Marthas here who can say, well, if I was in Martha's shoes, I would be a much better Martha by preparing all this before Jesus came. And it'll be all be ready so I could sit down. And there's some truth to that. And those are good things. But the point here is to prioritize the best things in our life. It's a call to reevaluate your priorities. And for those who identify with Mary, because I know there's some here who identify with Mary. And maybe you can't fathom someone like Martha who's so, scrambling doing all of this stuff and Mary's just sitting there, you're like, of course, of course. That's what you need to be doing. And if you identify with Mary, know that this is not an excuse 
for you to have a disaster of a house. This, this is not instruction for you just to lay down and relax, crawl up with a good book, even though your house is a disaster. And when people come over, say, well, just go to the fridge and help yourself. I'm being a Mary. Doing what is excellent. It's not a call to slothfulness or disarray or disorganization. It's not a call to never be working hard or never be burdened or distracted by a heavy load. But it's a call to priorities. To choosing the best thing. That's the point of this particular event. So what's the best thing? What's the best thing for you? What's the best thing for us in our lives? Now, in this case, you might think, well, the best thing for Mary was really her education, uh, her learning to be taught. But the best thing and the point of Jesus' words here is the best thing is not his teaching, but the teacher. It is Jesus Christ himself that is the best thing, that is our highest good, our, our highest priority. He's the sun in the middle of our solar system in which everything should gravitate around. He's the center of our life, the very object, the very root of our affections, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. This is the most excellent thing, the greatest thing. Jesus is the best portion, the highest one, the preeminent one. Now, I, when I say that, it can sound very unpractical. Especially if, you, if you're a new believer, you're like, okay, Jesus is, is the greatest thing. He is the best thing. He is the preeminent one. He's the good portion. It's like, what, is, what does that mean? What does it mean that he's the best thing? What does it mean for us now when he's not here physically? That Jesus is the best thing. Well, what I want to do is take you to four different spots in the Gospels. As I seek to answer this question of why Jesus is the best thing and what does that mean? And we're going to see in four different cases, complete loyalty, devotion, love, adoration, veneration towards the Lord Jesus Christ to the extent to which nothing else matters. That Jesus Christ is the very center of my life. And we're going to look at why that is the case. Why were the disciples willing to lose their lives to follow Jesus? Why do we see such adoration here by Mary? Not only in this occasion, but other occasions. And so that's what we're going to do. To answer this question, why Jesus is best, what does it look like to, to make or to recognize Jesus is best, what, what motivates us? And then I'll end with a few other practical remarks, okay? So here we go. Four different ways from the Gospels that demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the best portion. Number one, he is the word of life. He is the word of life. This is why Jesus is best. He's the word of life. In John chapter six, you can turn that if you wish. You don't have to. I'm not gonna read large portions of it. Don't have the time here this morning. But in John chapter six, it describes Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Miraculously providing for them bread. And you can imagine the crowds and how astounded they were at this sign from the Lord Jesus Christ. And as they are drawn to him, because just imagine what you would be thinking. If you were to someone who stumbled across this one who, who can multiply food... Hey, we could eliminate poverty. Hey, if, if I followed you, then I'd always be satisfied. Do it again, Jesus. What else can you make besides bread? You know, we'd be thinking about all the things that Jesus could do for us and do for the world. And as the crowds followed Jesus, Jesus told them, as they asked for more bread, he said that he had a bread that would satisfy them forever. He said that he had a bread that would give life to the world. And the crowds cried out and said, sir, give us this bread always. To which Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. 
There's a number of times in the gospels where Jesus Christ, when people are, are wanting bread, Jesus says, I am the bread. When they say, Lord, show us the way, I am the way. Lord, save my life. I am life. The same thing here with Mary sitting under Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching, he, he is the teacher and he is the word. He is the bread. He is the source of everything good. And so Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not just the provider of life, but he is life. Jesus is not just useful to save your soul. He is your salvation. He doesn't just teach the word of life. He is the word of life. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Now, as Jesus continued with the crowds, saying, you don't want the bread that perishes, but you want me, they ended up deserting him. They said, well, that's not best. What's best is for me to fill my belly. What's best is for me to see you do more signs, do more stuff. And so they walked away. The crowds left him. And the disciples turned to Jesus after the crowds left and said, Lord, this is a hard saying. Because Jesus said, not only am I the bread of life, but you need to eat on my, uh, a feed on my flesh, drink my blood. They're like, Lord, come on. The crowds just got here. We were getting some momentum. And now you're scaring them away with us. Eat my flesh and drink my blood speech. Come on. And he goes, will you go away also? To which Peter respond, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else are we going to go? We know who you are. That is the conviction of those who know Christ is best. When you know Christ is best, there's nowhere else you can go. There's nowhere else you'd rather go. Even in times of hardship and even in times of affliction, even in times of ridicule, even when they were getting ready to nail these men to a cross, they would not deny the Lord who bought them. Where else would they go? He's the Holy One. He's the Word of Life. He is the Bread of Life. He has the words of eternal life. And so they chose Him. They chose Christ because He is best because he is the word of life. Another situation we see is found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36 to 50. And here we see that Christ is best because he has forgiven you. For those who have been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, they know Christ is best. And in Luke chapter 7, we looked at this a number of weeks ago in a sermon Jesus was there at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And as Jesus was there to eat a meal with Simon the Pharisee, in comes a woman, a sinful woman, who is weeping. And her tears are, are pouring out upon Jesus' feet as she's flat on the ground behind him. And her tears bathe his feet and he begins to wash his feet with her hair and, and anoint him with this ointment on his feet. And the Pharisee can't believe he's disgusted that Jesus would allow such a sinner to touch him in that way. He said, well, there's no way he's a prophet. He would know who this woman is. And Jesus, knowing what is in his heart, he said, well, this woman loves much. Why? Because she's been forgiven much. Those who have been forgiven much by the Lord Jesus Christ, they know that Christ is best and they love him and they worship him and they venerate him and they adore him and they would never leave him nor forsake him because he has forgiven them so much. Now, we don't know the details of that woman's sin. I don't know the details of all your sin. You know the details of your sin better than anyone else besides the Lord above knows the details of your sin. And think about your sin for a moment. 
Think about the harsh words that you have uttered towards people that you love and people who love you. Think about the bitterness in your heart. Think about the pride that rears its ugly head in defensiveness, in a critical spirit, even sending you to bouts of depression or sending you up to arrogance and boastfulness. Think about lustful thoughts in which you indulged in. Think even about murderous thoughts, hateful thoughts, malicious thoughts that you've had towards others because they have slighted you. Think about the lies that you've told to make yourself look better, to get something that you wanted, to get yourself out of trouble, to alleviate yourself from consequence. Think about your disrespect towards your parents. Think about how you have not loved your spouse the way that you ought or how you have not loved your children, raised them up and nurtured them as you ought. Think about how you have not come before the Lord in prayer as you ought. Think of how you have not pursued holiness and righteousness, but excuse sin in your life. Think about the things you've stolen, even small things, to get an advantage of yourself, for yourself. Think about your envy and how you are envious of those who are similar than you, but maybe they've got ahead a little bit more than you. And so, oh, you'd wish that they would be taken down a step or two or that you would be in their shoes. Think about all the things that not only that you've done, but the things that you didn't do that you should have done. Think about your many regrets, times of shame. And as you think about our own sin, our heart breaks. Especially the sin that we perpetrated against those whom we love. As you think about the weight of our sin, and then we behold the great Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth to, to rescue sinners, we are moved towards him with such affection and such love because of what he has done. He has forgiven us much. And I know some of you here, when you think about your sin, you're not moved to a place of joy in thinking about Christ. Your, your head just wants to go a little bit lower, a little bit more shame because of what you have done. But Christian, realize Jesus Christ came for sinners. He said, I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for those who are well. I didn't come for those who think that they're okay, who think they just need a little bit of help, a little bit of boost. But I came for the wretched. I came for those who mourn and weep over their sin. I came for those who are brokenhearted. I came for those not only who are sick in their sin, but who are dead in their trespasses and iniquity. And if you are that kind of sinner, then you ought to rejoice and love Jesus Christ much because he forgives sinners like you. We sometimes have a, a view of the church that, hey, we're all here, we're, we're wearing suits, and boy, everyone here is so good. The reason why we're here is because we're so awful. Because we're sinners. If other people in this room knew what has been through your mind in your life, the things that you've done, the things that you've thought, you wouldn't show your face here again. None of us would. We're wretched sinners. And you know what? Christ knows you better than you know yourself. And he still would come to this earth and he still would lay down his life for you. He would still come and die for sinners. He would still come and drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could be reconciled to a holy God. It's incredible. And when you recognize the depth of your sin and you recognize the greatness of Christ's salvation, then you will love him much. You will see Christ is best and he will be at the center of your life. This woman who bathed Jesus with her tears was not thinking, hey, this would be a good thing for me to do to try to earn my way into Jesus' good books. She couldn't help herself. She didn't care who was watching, what they were thinking, what they might be saying. She just loved Jesus because she's been forgiven by Jesus. That ought to be our heart. 
And when we see Christ as best because he has forgiven us much, then we will choose him as the best portion. Because Christ has forgiven you. Number three. So Christ is the word of life. He has forgiven you. And number three, he is the lover of your soul. Another occasion in the Gospels is in Matthew 26, 6 to 13. Jesus was in the house of another man, another Simon. Not the Pharisee, but this time Simon the leper. And as he was there with Simon the leper and his disciples were there, a a woman came in and she was carrying this alabaster flask, this, this flask full of ointment, very precious, very rare, very expensive. And she begins to pour it all over, over Jesus. And the disciples, especially Judas, were so upset this was happening. That wait, wait, wait a second. You could take that huge ointment and, and you could sell that and you could feed the poor with that. Why are you just pouring it all over Jesus? And again, Jesus rebukes his disciples. And he commends this woman for what she is doing and saying that she is anointing me for burial. Jesus was about to die. And here she is getting him ready for his burial, for his death and burial. Now the the gospel of John reveals that that woman again is Mary. The same Mary we have in our account today. Lavishing Jesus in this way with love. And what we recognize here when Jesus says that she is anointing my body for burial is that Mary's love is expressed to him right at that moment where he is about to lay down his life for sinners like us. And Jesus' burial is a demonstration of why he is best because his love is demonstrated through his own sacrifice, the giving of his life. In fact, in Romans 8, in verse 31, it says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the chapter ends by saying, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul does there through the Spirit of God is that if God sent his son to die for you, there is nothing that he will hold back from you. He has done the greater thing. He has given his life for you. So he's not going to be stingy at this point. He's not going to withhold his grace, withhold his riches, withhold his wisdom and, and kind of hold his death for us over our head as some kind of stick in which, come on guys, keep trying to measure up or else I'm not going to give you the, the full payment. His death for sinners was a demonstration that God's love is infinite towards the ungodly, towards the undeserving such as us. And there is nothing that God will withhold from you. Christ is best because he is the good shepherd, because he is the overseer of our soul. And as we consider the love of God in Christ Jesus. And as those who love the Lord Jesus. And who believe in him. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ loves your soul? That Jesus Christ loves your soul? That he came would die to redeem you? That he loves your soul? That he would keep it and guard it? That he loves your soul? That he would pray for you and intercede for you that he loves your soul and that he would send his spirit into this world to to seal you with a glorious inheritance that he loves your soul that he would adopt you into his heavenly kingdom that he loves your soul that he will one day give you a new body and wipe away your tears and comfort all of your sorrows do you recognize that jesus christ loves your soul far more than anyone could And he's demonstrated this love for us so that we would not have to question it, not have to wonder it. Jesus Christ is the lover of our souls. And so he's best and the best portion. 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not bring us into his kingdom and and give us new heavens and new earth? How will he not save us from God's coming wrath and grant us eternal life? He will do all of these things because he loves you and he loves your soul. He died for it. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of God, the Son of Righteousness came to this earth out of a love for your soul to redeem you. And so Jesus Christ is best. He's best. I'm not sure whether I mentioned the title of that third point, but it is he is the lover of your soul. So we've got three so far. He is the word of life. He has forgiven you. And he is the lover of your soul. Now I would say, for all of these things, this is who Jesus is for those who love him. For those who trust him, for those who believe in him. These are the assurances and promises for the Christian, for the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're precious. Fourth and finally, why Jesus Christ is best and the best portion. Number four, he is the end and the way. He is the end and he is the way. In John 14, 1 to 7, let me read to you that. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know the way where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now I want you to notice the goal of Jesus' words here, the so that. I am going to prepare a place for you so that you may be with me where I am. That's the goal. That is the destination of glory, of heaven. Is to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some Bible translations translate this, I go to prepare a place for you and my father's house are many rooms. It's it's translated mansions to which some have taken that as, wow, look at all this great stuff we have coming for us in heaven. Mansions. Streets of gold. Family reunion. Rest. Oh, this is going to be great. But Jesus says, I am going there to prepare a place for you so that, not that you might be put to a place of riches and wealth and comfort and ease, but so that you may be with me and be with me forever. In other words, Jesus is the destination of the Christian. And not only is he the destination, but he's also the transportation. He is the way there. He is the end and he is the way. He is the life. He is the truth. He is heaven. He is salvation. He is your hope. Jesus Christ is best. That's why Paul would say, to die is gain. Why? Because there I am with Christ. In Psalm 16, verse 11, it says this, God, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, God is good and Christ is best because heaven, the end goal of our salvation is to be with him to be adopted into his family, to, to take part in his treasures of riches, of, of grace and of wisdom, to share as adoption of sons, to be loved by him. And so do you not see that the riches of Christ are made yours because he went to prepare a place for you? A place for you. Because of his love. He has purchased an inheritance for you. 
He has granted you entrance into the Father's house, into the Father's kingdom. And so Christ is best. He is the best portion. There's nothing else in this life that is more excellent, more preeminent than Christ. And so all of our priorities must come under this fact that Jesus Christ is best. And we see it in all these events where the disciples, where Mary, where others were loyal to Jesus Christ, would lavish him with worship, with love, with loyalty, because Christ is best and they knew it. Now for us today, what does it look like? If we see that Christ is the word of life, we recognize Christ has forgiven us. We recognize he's the lover of my soul. We recognize that he is not only the way, but he is the end. Then what does it mean for us day to day to say Christ is best? To respond in a way in keeping with who he is. Now there's a myriad of directions we can go in right now. But I want to leave you with two things. When we think about Christ is best and how that affects our priorities. The first is this. We should prioritize the things of the Lord. We should prioritize the things of the Lord. As a Christian, you know Christ is best. As a Christian, you know the things that I'm saying to you this morning. You're saying yes and amen. Christ is that. And so we ought to prioritize the things of the Lord. Now, what do I mean by the things of the Lord? Well, we call this God's word, right? We call this gathering Christ's body. We call this the Lord's Supper. Baptism, another one of the Lord's commands, one of the Lord's ordinances. We're here on a Sunday because this is the Lord's day, the day he rose from the, from the grave. And so even in the names for these different elements in our lives ought to dictate their importance. If this is God's word, and if Christ is best and our highest priority, then would this not affect on the priority of his own word in our lives? Do we prioritize the word of God? Are, are we so busy in our life that we have no time for the word? Are, are we too invested in, in other avenues of learning and of encouragement and, and other sources of, of comfort or entertainment or distraction that we are not feasting? On the bread of God's word? Do we prioritize the word because we know Christ is best? Do we prioritize the church? Christ's body. Christ died for this church. Christ has laid down his life, not only for you as a sinner to reconcile you to himself, but for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Should this not then be a priority in our lives if Christ would shed his blood for these ones? Should not we love one another because Christ is best? Should not the church be central in our lives? I know we live in a day when there are a myriad of, a multitude of groups and of clubs and of activities and venues. And, and you know, we... We so often go through life like we're ordering from a menu. And like, I, I, like, I like the chicken wings over here at this restaurant. And, and, and I like the hamburgers over here. And I like the french fries there. And all this, all this go everywhere. And it's pick and choose what I like and, and assemble around my own preferences. Is that how we treat the word of God? Is that how we treat the church? That this is one of the things in my life because I like this particular aspect or in seeing that Christ is best, the word of life. He is the one who has forgiven you, the lover of your soul, the end and the way. And so I will give myself to his body in love, in devotion, in loyalty, because Christ is my priority. Do we prioritize the Lord's day? You know, Sunday can be a good day for family things. It could be a good day to Get caught up on things that you need to get caught up on. A lot of good things that you can do on a, on a Sunday, but are we doing the best things? 
are the best things that we're doing on a Sunday reflective of the fact that Jesus Christ is best? You know, one of the unique things we do as a church here is welcome and encourage our children to be part of our services. It's a good thing for women in the church to say, hey, I want to minister to other moms and care for kids in another place so that their moms can, can pay attention. It's a good thing. But the best thing, I would argue, is that we're all here to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the best thing. And so are we doing the best things on the Lord's day? Is, is our priority reflective of, of Christ being the best? There's so many good things you can be doing. Soup kitchen, knitting blankets for the poor, giving to overseas orphanages, digging, fresh, or, or digging wells for fresh water, building efficient stoves to heat homes. But if we are not prioritizing God's word, his supper, his body, his day, then maybe we're just a Martha Burdened by many good things, but not doing what is best, what is excellent, what is necessary. And so you will find that your priorities as you grow as a Christian will be growing more and more to align with God's priorities. But we must never forget the root to establish that Jesus Christ is best and my love and my affection, my worship, my adoration is centered towards Christ because of his love for me, because of the goodness of the gospel. And then from that comes my ability to make wise choices and to prioritize things in a way that reflect the excellency of Christ. That's the first. We prioritize the things of the Lord. The second way that I'll give you practically on how we ought to see Christ as best and have it reflect in our lives is to listen to the Lord and to obey the Lord. Now this seems very simple. You know, we, maybe you sing a hymn, it's not in our hymn book, but uh, trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. We're like, well, that's, that's too easy. <laughs> that's the Christian life. <laughs> trust and obey. Listen to the Lord, believe what he says, and then do it. That's, what, that's discipleship 101. Now, in our day and age, I admit, obedience to the Lord's command, obedience to the Lord's word is, is de- undervalued or maybe even devalued, maybe even denigrated in our day and age. It's, it's labeled as legalism. It's labeled as, as being a Pharisee. It's, it's labeled as being anti-gospel, un- un- unchristianly. That's just a works-based religion. And so we don't want holiness and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I admit they wouldn't say that last part, but there's such an emphasis on Christ's grace that if there's any emphasis upon, therefore, obey Christ, that is typically left off and left out or said to be a dangerous thing. But Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will abide in my word. If you are truly my disciples, you will bear fruit. And for those branches that don't bear fruit, they'll be cut off and cast into the fire. Holiness, obedience, Loving loyalty expressed in what we say and how we think and what we do, the places we go, the activities we're engaged in is an expression of our love for the Lord. When we love Jesus Christ, we will do what he says. We will love his word. We will say his law is good. It's sweet like a honeycomb. Not because the law is what saves me. Christ saves. But I love Christ. And so I will obey his commandments. I will listen to him. I will believe him. And then I will serve him. I will obey him. When Christ says, speak the truth, we say, oh Lord, that's hard. People don't like to hear the truth today. I'll be persecuted for this. But if we love Christ, when he says, speak the truth, we believe him and we speak the truth. When Christ says, husbands, lay down your lives for your wife. 
Sanctify her with the word. We say, oh Lord, that's hard. But I believe you and I will obey you. When Jesus commands wives to submit to their own husbands, children to honor and respect their parents, we say, Lord, this is hard. But Lord, I believe you. I love you. You're the best. And so I will serve you. I will obey you. When Jesus says to the church, love one another, we say, that's hard. You don't know what they've done to me. He says, I know what they've done to you. And I'm calling you to love them. And so when Christ is best, we say, Lord, I believe. And so I will obey you. When Christ says, put away all anger and put away all malice and lust and greed and idolatry and pride. And he goes on and on. We say, this is going to be a battle. But we say, yes, Lord, I will listen to you. I believe you. I love you. You're your best. And so I will serve you. When we delight in the best thing, we prioritize the right things. And then we obey him out of that love. So let us not leave here busy around Christ and missing what is necessary, what is central, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is best. But when we see him as best for for the myriad of reasons that he is, well, then our priorities, our thinking, our love, our obedience is all aligned to him. So he gets all glory and praise, and we receive such comfort. We receive life. We receive salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. No, no words can do justice to his excellency. Oh, God, his love for sinners. Oh, the fact that he is the great shepherd and overseer of our souls, that he prays for us, that he would come to this earth to die in our place, suffer your wrath, Oh God, we thank you for Christ. Help everyone here to see the excellency of Christ, the necessity of love towards him, that we would worship him, be devoted to him, and that he would be central to each and every priority in our lives. Oh God, we pray this so that you might be honored and glorified through your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.